Well, good morning to everyone. We're so glad you've chosen to worship with us today. I'm Pastor Tim, the executive pastor, and I should say a little something because if you have, uh, if you watch our bulletin, you will know that I was not scheduled to preach this week, and so I probably should explain. Tuesday morning was like any other Tuesday around here, you know, um, and um, little did we know when we got out of bed that morning that our pastor, about 10 o'clock, would start experiencing um, symptoms of a heart attack. And that landed him at the ER and um, a couple of days in the hospital. And um, he has, uh, so far, the tests have been fairly negative. Um, well, I, I said that wrong. The tests have been negative. <laughs> and I've probably already said more than he would want me to say to you, but because um, he never wants to be the center of attention, which I love that about him. But um, because he was in the hospital two days, we realized we needed to shift. He wouldn't have time to put a sermon together. So come Wednesday afternoon, we were making the shift. And so I'm here this morning to preach with you or to preach to you or to preach the word. Um, none of it's coming out quite right right at the moment. In fact, um, I haven't had as much time as I would typically like to have to uh, come to grips with the passage that I'm going to preach on. So if I mess up, give me a break. Um, it's, been an, it's been an interesting week. Um, so with that said, would you open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. We are going to read that in just a moment. Um, let me make a couple of introductory thoughts, though, because I always want us to uh, pay attention to the context of the text we're going to look at. The greatest sermon ever preached is a kind of what people have said about the Sermon on the Mount, which is recorded in Matthew's, Matthew chapter 5 to 7. It is a uh, series of messages that I've been preaching through as I have preached periodically. And I want to say... Um, probably the same thing I've always said every time I get up here to preach on this, uh, this great sermon, um, but maybe say it in a little bit different way. It is important for you to know that when Jesus preached this sermon, it was preached before He had gone to the cross. This is prior to the cross. The overall context of this great sermon is to drive us to the cross, though. It's to help us to understand that we are spiritually bankrupt. We are lost in our sins. There is no way for us to get out of our sins. It is only through Jesus' death on the cross that we have a way out. We need a Savior. That's really the overall context of this great sermon. But Jesus has now gone to the cross, obviously. And so secondarily, this sermon teaches to us, it gives us the way that God intends His people, citizens of the kingdom of God, it teaches us how we are to live. And we are to be different than the rest of the world. We are to counter the culture, if you will, through our righteousness, through the way we live our lives. How we live our lives provides an alternative, another way, that people would see who Jesus is. People are so often concerned about how to witness for their faith and I just want you to know that the best form of evangelism, the best way for you to live your, or to witness for Jesus is by how you conduct your lives. People see Jesus through you. They have the opportunity to learn who Jesus is by how you live your lives. This morning, we're going to look at what is 
kind of the sixth illustration that Jesus uses to depict a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Today we're going to learn about loving our enemies. I think that is very pertinent to our culture, by the way. It's a very challenging portion of the Scriptures and of this great sermon. Some would say it's central to all of what it is to be a Christian. Listen to what a couple of theologians have said about this text we're going to to read in a moment. R. Kent Hughes says, Here our Lord gives instruction for building an expansive love into our lives. It is the most concentrated expression of the Christian love ethic and personal relations found anywhere in the New Testament. James Montgomery Boyce, who is with the Lord now, says these verses carry the core of Christian ethics up to anchor it in the character of God. For they teach that the Christian is to love others, not as a man loves his friend, but as God loves. John Stott said this final antithesis brings us to the highest point of the Sermon on the Mount, for which it is both, listen to this, for which it is both to be admired and is most resented. Now what he means by that is it's resented because it's very hard to do. Namely, the attitude of total love which Christ calls us to show towards our enemies. Nowhere is our need of the power of the Holy Spirit, whose first fruit is love, more compelling. And what... John Stott brings into this is what is so true about the Sermon on the Mount. We cannot live it out without the Holy Spirit in our lives. Think about it for just a moment. Just think about this concept of love which we're going to read about. John 13, 34, and 35, great, great text that I would encourage you to, to memorize. A new command I give you, Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you So you must love one another. And then he says, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In essence, what we are being told is that people see Jesus through the way we live, the way we love one another. But think about it for a moment. We struggle to love one another. We do. Let's be honest. Even in the church, we struggle to love one another. And if we can't love one another, how can we ever expect to love our enemies? Well, that's what the Lord's going to speak to us about this morning. Because Jesus calls His followers, the main point of this text is that Jesus calls His followers to love as He loves. Let's read it together. Matthew 5, 43-48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your brother, what are you doing more than, than the others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. We are commanded by God, to, by Jesus, to love as He loves. He commands His followers to love as He loves. And I'm going to walk you through this text and try to give us a picture of what's, what our Lord is saying to us here. And then I'm going to try to apply it. Because what you're going to hear about is two kinds of love. And we live in a culture where love is really adulterated. It really is. We, we live in a culture, and it sneaks into the church, where it's just, just love everybody and let everybody do what they want to do. And Jesus is presenting something different than that. You're going to really see about two kinds of love. So let me show you. Let's walk through what He says and see if I can make this clear to you. The first thing that was taught by our Lord in this passage, it, it was taught that love is to be limited. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what, they had, that's what had been taught. And what they had heard when they heard, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, that is partially correct and it is partially wrong. Love your neighbor is a direct quotation from the Old Testament law. And Brian pointed this out. It's in Leviticus 19.18. Do not seek revenge or bear, grudge, or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So love your neighbor is straight out of the Old Testament law. But hate your enemy is something they added in. That is nowhere in the Old Testament. Now, someone would say right off, why would they add something in? Well, folks, it's a whole other sermon, but I just want to tell you, we do it all the time. We add things into the Scriptures all the time. As Christians, what we want to be right, we say is right, and, and it's not, and, and then it, it, we, we say it's from the Scriptures, but, but it's really not out of the Scriptures. We do that kind of stuff all the time. But that's another... That's another message in and of itself. Let's talk about why did they add this in? How did they make that jump? Because it's not found in the Old Testament. It has to do with kind of the definition of neighbors. That's where they get themselves in a little bit of trouble. See, there's a couple of different thoughts on this. One, one thought is that the Jews took the word neighbor to be exclusive. And they do, no matter which view you take on this. Um, and so their point would be that we are only to love our neighbors, and therefore we hate everybody else. That's kind of the thought that was there. Another thought, and I think there's, there's uh, depends on who you talk to, another thought is that the Jews were convinced that the context of this Leviticus passage that we read a moment ago confines the definition of neighbors to fellow Jews. In other words, you are to love those that you are like. You are to love those that you are in relationship with. You are to love those that you agree with. It's that kind of a deal. But that is not in the Old Testament. And in fact, I could show you all kinds of passages, obviously, in the New Testament that would go against that. But these folks when Je who Jesus was writing to didn't have the New Testament. So it would be hermeneutically incorrect to use the the New Testament to make the point here. We could apply it, but let's just stay in the Old Testament because that's where they would be. They are refuted from the Old Testament. Proverbs 25, 21 says, if your enemy is hungry, 
Give him food to eat. They would have had that. That's certainly contrary to hating your neighbor. If he is thirsty, sorry, I said that wrong. <laughs> That's contrary to hating your enemy, not your neighbor. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Exodus 23, 4 and 5 says, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you falling down under its load, don't leave it there. Be sure to help it, help it up. Help him with it. See, the idea is, is they have added in something that is really taught in the Old Testament is not true. This is another argument that I think is a weak argument, but I understand it. Some think that, you know, it's just the human propensity. It's just the human propensity to say every positive command must have a negative command with it. So in other words, when our Lord or when God says in the law that you are to love your neighbor, they say, well, certainly then you must hate your enemy. See, and they just add that in. That is not there. And it is limited. It's a limited kind of love. The point is, is that by Jesus' time, this hatred for foreigners was so embedded in the culture that they actually thought that they were honoring God by despising anyone who was not Jewish. Now that sounds terrible, doesn't, doesn't it? But I honestly think that that is really the way we think sometimes. In other words, this limited love was, I'm going to love those that I'm like. I'm going to love those that I'm in relationship with. I'm going to love those that I care about. I'm going to love those that I agree with, but everybody else I hate. I mean, I don't think we would say we do that, but I think we do it all the time if we're really honest. And Jesus steps in and He addresses this false teaching with this. He teaches, Jesus taught that love is to be unlimited. Love is to be unlimited. Matthew 5.44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You heard this. Did I say that wrong again? I don't think so. Um, you heard this. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So in other words, continue to love your neighbors, but also love your enemies. Now this was a radical teaching in that culture. It really was. And honestly, I think it's a radical teaching in this culture if we're really honest with ourselves. Remember the common man on the street had the perception of God's law that it required them to hate their enemies. And to take the limits off of love like Jesus did there would have seemed absurd to them. Come on, love your enemies? That's an absurd teaching to that culture, and I think it's an absurd teaching to our culture. I really do. Jesus calls for His people, though, to love beyond the kind of love that was typically taught. In other words, we aren't to limit our love. It's supposed to be offered to all. Jesus calls us to a divine kind of love. This love is a love without limits. This love is a love that loves everyone regardless of what they say or do to us. 
It loves even when the object of love is hateful or unlovely. Jesus, while we were yet sinners, died on the cross for us. We weren't lovely, but He offered His love to us. That's the kind of love it is. One guy said, you might say that it is love for no reason at all. Or even, or love even when there are ample reasons to discourage it. It's a different kind of love. It's a love that's offered to all. And I'm being general. I'm going to apply this at the end, but let me say a couple of more things. Why would Jesus call us to that kind of love? There is a reason, and it's taught in the text. There's really two reasons why He calls us to this unlimited type of love or this divine love. The first is this. When we love with that unlimited divine kind of love, it makes us more like God. It makes us more like God. And when I say us, I, I think it's clear, but let me make it clear. When I say us, I am talking to those of us who claim the name of Christ, those of us who are in the family of God. Because this isn't written to the unbelieving world, it's written to us. Those of us who are in God's family. So Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then he comes in and gives some illustrations to, to um, help us to understand what it means. Verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on evil and the good, and sins reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. The point is, is God's love is impartial. It's offered to all. This illustration about the sun and the rain being offered, to all, being offered to all is picked up really well by a story that William Barclay tells in his commentary on Matthew. He says, a certain rabbi Joshua ben Nehemiah noticed this and wrote, have you ever noticed that the rain fell on the field of A, who was righteous, and not on the field of B, who was wicked? Or that the sun rose and shone on Israel, who was righteous, and not upon the Gentiles who were wicked. God causes the sun to shine both on Israel and on the nations, for the Lord is good to all. Now catch that. For the Lord is good to all. And we are called to be good to all. Not just those that we like, or those that we are in a relationship with, or those we have emotional feelings for, or those that we know and agree with. We are to be good to all, even the wicked. Hang on to that. And let me give you the second reason. The second reason Jesus gives, calls us to this kind of love is because it is this love that distinguishes us from everyone else. This is what distinguishes us from the world. And Jesus illustrates it. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's the command. And then He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? He uses this negative illustration to drive home a point. <laughs> 
I just think it's comical because we were just audited. The church was just audited by the IRS. Wava calls me into her office one day and she says, Tim, let me read something to you. We are going to be audited by the IRS. I was like, great. I was just praying that that would happen. <laughs> no, it kind of freaked me out, made me nervous. What is it about tax collectors? I mean, you know, I mean, we really have great business conduct. I mean, we really work hard. We have a great system, but I was still pretty nervous. Now, our IRS agent, by the way, was really a nice guy. And it's very important to know that he was very careful to make sure that everything he did was according to the precepts of the law. In other words, he was going to do it right. And as we met him and got to know him, that was, that was good. I mean, we, we, we kind of liked this guy. And so as a tax collector, he was pretty a good, pretty good guy and he was very upright. But that is not the tax collectors of Jesus' day. It's not even close. Because in Jesus' day, tax collectors were corrupt. In fact, the Roman Empire used a tax system in which the government would designate how much money was to be collected from a certain specific area. And then they would hire these tax collectors or they would send these tax collectors in to collect that amount of money. And so they had to turn in the amount of money that was supposed to be turned in. But what was different was these guys could keep whatever extra they could get. So can you imagine? I mean, they were crooks. But what's interesting and with the point that Jesus is trying to make here even the most crooked people in the culture still have friends and still have people that they're nice to. It's their other tax collecting buddies. And so if the point that he's making is if someone loves only his friends, then he's not much better than even a crooked tax collector. That's the point that he's making. Then he drives home the point with another illustration to help us to catch it. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then he says, another illustration to, to make his point, if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? The point is that the love that Jesus is calling us to needs to be more than what everybody else is doing. It's to be more than even what the best of the unbelieving world can offer. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it well, and so I'm just going to read to you what he says about this. The Christian is the man who is above and goes beyond the natural man at his very best and highest. Speaking of the natural man, we go above that man who is at his very best and highest. There are many people in the world who are not Christian, but who are very moral and highly ethical. Men whose word is their bond and who are scrupulous and honest, just and upright. You never find them doing a shady thing to anybody, but they are not Christian. And they say so. They do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and may have, a, and may have rejected even the whole of the New Testament teaching with scorn. But they are absolutely straightforward, honest, and true. You can relate to that, can't you? I hear people say they don't know the Lord, but they're really nice people. There are really nice people out there. 
and they're ethically very upright. And then Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I just want to give you a little insight into a pastor. My brain, I just started to say Dr. Jones, and I went to um, Indiana Jones. And I thought, no, don't say that. But now I just told you what I did and totally took away from that. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, though. Now, the Christian, by definition here, is a man who is capable of doing something that the best man cannot do. He goes beyond and does more than that. He exceeds. He is separate from all others, and not only from the worst among others, but from the very best and highest among them. In other words, we as Christians offer a type of love that is better than the best of all unbelievers and what they have to offer. D.A. Carson says this, a greeting can say a great deal, especially if it brings a wish of welfare and well-being. If certain people are carefully ignored, though, and only those close to us receive our sincere good wishes, how are we any different from the pagans? Great statement. Someone once said that God actually gave us five Gospels. This is not a negative statement, by the way. This is meant to have a positive point. The Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Mark, the Gospel according to Luke, the Gospel, the gospel according to John, and the Gospel according to you. How do people come to know Jesus Christ? Or how do people come to know God? Through Jesus Christ, right? You can only know God through Jesus Christ. That's the only way you can know God. How do they come to know Jesus Christ? Well, certainly they come to know Him through how He's presented in the Holy Scriptures. But let me say this. We don't live in a, in a church culture anymore used to be everybody went to church. It was a part of the culture. That's not the way it is anymore. There are many, many people that will never sit where you're sitting this morning. So the point of the gospel according to you is that it is conceivable to believe that you are the closest that some will ever come in to know who Jesus Christ is. It is conceivable to believe that you and how you conduct yourself in front of folks is the only way they will ever see Jesus Christ because they won't read the Scriptures. They won't come to church. So how we live our lives, folks, matters. And it is offering a love that is unlimited and divine that God uses to draw people to Himself. Now, I've spoke in huge generalities, and I just got to tell you, I wish I'd had more time to think through this than I've had this week, and I would love to stay in generalities. That's pretty comfortable for me. But I really think we've got to try to figure out what is the difference between the limited love and the unlimited love. I know we understand it in a general way, but what does it really mean? For example, how do you love someone that you disagree with? Or how do you love someone who's in a lifestyle that you think is 
anti to the precepts of the Word of God? Or how do you love someone that you really don't like? I know, we say we love everybody. Baloney, we don't. If we were really honest, we don't. We just say it because it's the Christian thing to say. And then sometimes love has almost become in our culture this kind of thing where it's just, I'm just going to love them and put my arm around them and care for them. And, I'm just, and then we end up condoning what they do sometimes. What do you do with all of that? Well, I don't know if I can, <laughs> I don't know if I can make it clear, but I'm going to try to help us to understand a little bit. So let's think about those two kinds of love. Let me first again make it clear in a general way. The limited love that they had heard about is a love, is love for those that you like, love for those that you care about, love for those that you know, love for those that you agree with. You know, it's those people that you really care. It's like, you know, my wife and I, we have conflicts from time to time. It's probably usually my fault. That wasn't aimed at my wife, by the way. I didn't say that in the first service. I thought, oh, that sounds like I'm making fun of her. No, I mean, you know, I, we, we, we run into conflicts between one another, but we love each other. We have emotional feelings for one another, and it's even deeper than that, right? Because we've spent 39 years together, and so we work to reconcile. You know, our children, we always are waiting when they mess up we're always there for them, right? You know, we always hope the best for them. Because we're in a relationship with them. Friends, that kind of thing. But what about that guy across the street that chooses to rev his motorcycle at 6 o'clock in the morning when you're trying to read your Bible and you're thinking, what an idiot. Is he not aware of all this, of other people in the neighborhood? I'm a motorcycle rider and it makes me mad. You know, you go out and holler at the guy because you don't, even, you don't even know the guy. But you know, see, that's the limited kind of love. You pick and choose who you love. Unlimited love, though, is love for those you maybe don't like or you don't care about or you don't agree with or maybe you don't even know them. Isn't it amazing how much we talk about people that we don't even know? Now, what is... What is the unlimited love? I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 4, 29-32, and I'm going to try to illustrate what it is. Because how do you love when you don't love? I guess that's really the question. I think Ephesians 4, 29-32 will help us to understand it a little bit. I want to point something out before I read it to you. In this passage, you have something said, and then in the middle of it, we are told that you have two, two statements, and right in the middle of both statements is do not grieve the Holy Spirit. The point being that something is said which grieves the Holy Spirit, and something is said after that that grieves the Holy Spirit. The point being is that we see how we grieve the Holy Spirit from this. I'm going to read it really slow. I'm going to ask you to really think about the words of this passage. 
in light of people you have the opportunity to love. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which builds up. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Unwholesome talk grieves the Holy Spirit. Are you catching that? And by the way, we talk sometimes without talking in this information age we live in. We record things for everyone to see. And I would ask you to think that it might grieve the Holy Spirit what we allow other people to, when we allow other people to hear our thoughts. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. Bitterness, rage, and anger. Because that grieves the Holy Spirit. Brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Think about that in light of the, in a professional setting, and the people we work with. Think about that boss that you don't like. Are we not to treat even that person with respect? And do we treat them with respect and compassion when we talk about them to everybody else? Folks, I'm sharing with you, it's being, it, I think maybe it's being aimed at you, but I'm sharing with you. I didn't have a lot of time to think about this, and I was really challenged as I studied it. I'm really sharing with you things that have challenged me. Think about it in the social realm. In relation to as I said, those folks in your neighborhood that you don't agree with or that invade your space. Your house is beautiful and their house is trashy. And it bugs you. And maybe you don't talk to anybody else about it, but you think about it. Is that really unlimited love? I think not. And I'm going to really risk something here. Think about it in a political realm. Sometimes I think we think that politics is what it is to be Christian. Do you know the folks that Jesus wrote to? They had no rights. They had nothing that they could do. And what did Jesus tell them to do? Just live for Him. You know, I think Christians should vote. And I've got to tell you that 
if you know me, I know from listening to other people, I'm a, I have an opinion. I'm very black and white, although I'm hoping to be a little bit more gray. Because I'm not sure that black and white all the time isn't approaching legalism. And I'm trying to work on that in my own life. And I will never vote for someone who stands for abortion. Never. At least to the best of my ability. I will not vote for someone who supports lifestyles that I don't, that I think are, not that I don't support, but because that's really a wrong way of putting it. I will not vote for someone who supports a lifestyle that is against the precepts of the Word of God. But, I really think all of, all people ought to be respected. And I think we, I think so often we attack the person instead of the principle that the person stands for. I think we need to think about that. Sometimes it saddens me some of the things I see, slogans that people endorse that to me maybe attack that person. And I know I'm, I'm going to step in it a little bit. And I'm freewheeling a little bit here. And so if I step in it, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll take the consequences. When we attack our president, who I disagree with on many of his principles or his policies, but when we attack our president with our words and put it out there for everybody to see, I wonder what view we give of Christianity to people. Are we really loving him? And I wonder what David would think who said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. I really wonder. And I've been challenged in this, and I'm really trying to make some corrections in my own life. I wonder, do we really need to get caught up in all that, or do we just need to live our lives for the Lord? We have a voter registration table out front. I mean, out back here. I really think Christians ought to register and vote. I think that's good. I don't think we have to agree with the policies of politicians, obviously. I think we just need to be very careful because I think we're given a picture of what it is to be a Christian that maybe is taking away from what the Lord's calling us to here. When Jesus calls us to love and to offer it in an unlimited way, is that the way we really love? I think that's what I'm, I'm trying to think through and I hope you are as well. Or do we love the way the world loves? We just pick and choose who we're going to love. Is there something about the love that we express, the love of Jesus that can't be explained in natural terms? Because see, it's not natural to love your enemies and to treat them with respect. That's not natural. But that's what we're called to. Is there something special and unique about our love? The love that Jesus calls us to? The love of Jesus Himself that is not present in the life of unbelievers? I want to leave you with a thought by C.S. Lewis. I hope I've not offended you. I really do. But I really, I've had to think through it, so you do too. <laughs> C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste your time bothering where, whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets when you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. 
If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. The difference between a Christian and a worldly man is not that the worldly man has only affections or likings and the Christian man and the Christian has only charity. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian man trying, the tr Christian man trying to treat everyone kindly finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined himself liking at the beginning. See, I think this unlimited love is not about emotion. It's not about feelings. I think this unlimited kind of love that Jesus is calling us to has more to do about respecting people. And do you know that all people should be respected? And all people should be given the benefit of the doubt. And all people, we ought to, ex we ought to hope for the best for them whether they know the Lord or not. Do you know why? Because they are created in the image of God. Even our president is an image bearer. And I know for some that might be really hard to grasp. Uh, hard for me to grasp, frankly. Because I know what it's like to construct things in your mind about a person, to give them motives and actions that may or may not be true, but they are still image bearers and God calls us to show them respect. And I just want you to know, I, don't, I certainly have not exhausted this this morning. I'm, I'm unsettled myself. I'll leave you with a quote by Alfred Plummer. Why don't you stand and we'll pray. But I'll leave you with a quote from Alfred Plummer who was an old, an old theologian. And I think he said something that's worth stating. He says, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. Let's pray. Father, please help us to grasp what you have told us through your word this morning. Help us, Lord, to grasp the truth of it all and to live it out. Because, Lord, I, I can really understand why this, this portion of, the, of this sermon it can be so loved and almost despised because it is so difficult to love someone that emotionally we have such strong, heated, and even hated feelings for. But, Father, please help us to be a good witness for you in this world and help us to live it out we don't want to condone sin, Lord. But we, we do want to offer the gospel through our lives. Please help us to know how to do that, Lord. And then, Father, we pray that you would be with our pastor and care for him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to come as you're being dismissed, we'll have pastors and elders up here if you need to talk. God bless you all. Have a great day. Amen.